Welcome to the Picky Girl Travels Podcast. I'm Adelia Borashade. On the Picky Girl Travels Podcast, we're all about highlighting and promoting women who refuse to let society limit how they can live their lives or dictate dictate the path they take. My guest this week is Karen Ricks, a woman of many, many talents. Uh, She's a chef, a singer, an educator who founded her own school, a figure skater, dancer, uh, and to top it all off, she's traveling the world with her family. Um, I feel like I missed something in there. Did I? (laughs) Oh, probably. I like to call myself um, a Renaissance woman. And it's so amazing to be able to have the freedom to do so many different things that I love doing. I think Renaissance woman is the perfect title for you. Now, your career path is a bit atypical. Was that intentional? No, there was really, honestly, no specific intention when my husband and I set out on this path of living outside the United States so many years ago. It was honestly going to be something that we just did for a year, maybe two, if we really, really liked it. And then the original plan was to go back to our normal quote-unquote life in the United States and we ended up falling in love with this new life, this new lifestyle, this completely different way of living that we had never imagined before and so we just kept going. To give this a little bit of context, what was it like before you left the States? I was a uh, preschool uh, kindergarten elementary school teacher um, with a side job, (laughs) if you will, teaching figure skating at a local ice rink. Um, My husband had his nine to five job too. We were living in, actually we had lived in several different states across the US. Uh, We had moved most recently to be closer to family so that we could, you know, spend more time closer to the people that we loved. And I don't know, it was just kind of the normal nine to five rat race sort of existence. We thought we were doing the sorts of things that we were supposed to be doing, working our way toward that American dream, I guess. Um, At least that's what I thought. And then my husband kind of, it felt out of the blue to me. It was like, hey, how about we go live in Japan? <laughs> I literally laughed at him. I thought, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> um, but he had actually brought it up more than once over the seven years at that point that we had been married. And the first time I laughed it off and well, we talked about it around it, I suppose, for a little bit. Uh, But when he brought it up again a few years later, he was like, no, this is really serious. This is something I want to do. So we leapt. And that was back in 2007. And we have been traveling all around the world ever since. 
the move to Japan, was that connected to his nine to five job or was it just something, a place that, you know, resonated with him that he really wanted to live in? My husband had a passion for Japan specifically. Uh, He loves teaching and he had been invited Uh, recruited actually by the largest English language school in the country at that time to come and be an English language teacher. So I was following him for what was just going to be a one-year contract, and then we were headed back to the United States. But a real shift happened during that time that we were there, and we really fell in love with Japan. So one year turned into two years, and before we realized that we'd been living there for 10 years. Wow. (laughs) 10 years is quite a long time. Now, your son was born while you were living in Japan, right? That's right. How was that? It was like nothing I had ever imagined and everything I could have possibly hoped for as a woman who always wanted to have a child and the the Japanese healthcare system was really supportive and encouraging not just of me specifically but because the Japanese population has been in decline the government is very supportive of women who want to have children So there were all kinds of really incredibly supportive and nurturing and educational maternity programs that I participated in. Uh, Not to mention it was a a whole nother level of linguistic immersion for which I could never have imagined that I would have needed to prepare when I moved to the country. (laughs) Do you speak Japanese? I do, yes. Wow. How did you learn? Well, you know, it's interesting because I actually reached out to ask a a Japanese language teacher that I was introduced to in the States, how should I learn Japanese? What should I do to get started? And this teacher sat me down and opened up three different uh, books, (laughs) pamphlets, big, wide books. pieces of paper with long charts because the Japanese language has three different uh, syllabary, like alphabets, but writing systems. And he said, well, there are these three and here's the first one. And it's got 46 characters. Sit down and memorize them. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, that was just overwhelming. (laughs) Um, So I started off with a CD series, a Pimsleur language Um, CD series. And before moving, my husband and I listened to them in the car every day. So we had a few phrases. But when I actually got to Japan, and I signed up for regular Japanese language classes, I sat down with the textbooks and with an amazing teacher. And I was bored out of my mind. (laughs) Um, And I've always been a good student. I've always been great uh, when it comes to just cracking the books and studying. But it just, it didn't mean anything. (laughs) So what really worked best for me, what was most meaningful to me, 
was continuing to build on the relationships with the friends that I made in my Japanese class. And so we all began hanging out together. And that was where I really began to dive into something else that I really love, which is cooking. And we formed a real international mix of friends that would get together on a regular basis. Uh, a core of Japanese women, me, some random other people from a variety of different countries, and we would cook together. And we would talk about what we were doing. We would teach each other what we were making. And that was really where my best conversational Japanese was developed. That's awesome. Um, I have not been able to go beyond the three words of Mandarin that I learned before coming to China. So I'm just like way impressed. Um. <laughs> it's, it's not easy, but it's such a, a rich and complex language. And especially the more I travel, the more I realize that there are so many more layers to the relationships that I build and the depth of my cultural and historical understanding of a place and a people as I get to know the language. You mentioned that there was a great deal of support for women who wanted to have children. Um, did you find there to be much support for you or other women when after they had their kids, but when they wanted to return to work? Because J Japan does not have a good reputation for that. So I'm curious what your experience was. That's true. In fact, part of the reason for the population decline in Japan is that more and more women are pursuing lengthier careers and so many women, once they have children, they don't return to work. In fact, the expectation, honestly, is that they won't return to work. And so that was actually another thing that brought me so much closer to so many young Japanese mothers was getting a chance to get to know them and their young children and just learn more about what their day-to-day -day life looked like. While you were living in Japan, you and your husband founded a school. Yes. Was that part of a plan, a larger plan? Or did that just kind of happen? Uh, yes and no. I had actually been in conversation with the director of the Montessori school where I had been teaching in the States before leaving Japan. Uh, regarding expanding the school to include an infant and toddler program. I have always loved working with the youngest children. And so as I started teaching the moms with infants and toddlers in Japan, I just fell in love with the process and the freedom of it. Because as I said, these children were too young to go to school, but the mothers weren't expected to go to work. And so we all learned together. And it was an outgrowth of that teaching that I started in community centers around our town that um, was where the first students came from in our school. The mothers whose children were getting older were getting ready to start um, the preschool, their 
private kindergartens, uh, hoikuens or yochiens, in the Japanese public schools and private schools. But there weren't any at the time where the children could continue to learn English, which is a highly prized skill in Japan. And so these mothers asked, well, can you keep teaching my child after they go to school when they can't come to your morning classes anymore? And that was how we founded our school. From a practical standpoint, because, and I'm going to ask this because a lot of people, when they're thinking about going abroad, rarely give the um, visas and work permission and that sort of thing any consideration. So when you founded the school, was that doable on the visa that you were there on, or did you have to change your status? How did that work? It was that was that's a great question and it was actually a relatively complicated process that changed a few times during the course of uh, owning and operating even in the founding of our school uh, as i mentioned before my husband was recruited to teach for a language school so he had a specific type of visa that he was working under and when I founded the school, I had to change my visa status in order to be able to do and with uh, a legal team there in order to make that happen. And during the course of operating our school, as we began to grow, we attracted more attention from the local government. And so I had to go through a process again of restructuring our school and so in essence, the school that we founded became the sponsors for the visas that my husband and I were on during the time that we were there. So it was a really complex process. And I highly encourage anyone who does want to open a brick and mortar business like we did to make sure that you get accurate uh, and uh, up-to-date legal information in the country in which you choose to do so. Excellent advice. Um, so you were in Japan for 10 years, and ultimately you ended up selling the, the business um, because you all decided that you wanted to travel? That's right. We had been running our school for six years, and I received this once-in-a-lifetime sort of invitation, opportunity that we discussed as a family and felt like we simply couldn't pass up. So more than just the school, we sold like everything that in our home, in our school, which was two floors of a downtown building and our home of 10 years, like all of it, we pared down to uh, carry on bags and one checked bag each and we moved to Italy so I could go to cooking school. Wow, that that is an incredible opportunity. Um, so was the thought to be in Italy just for cooking school or was there a plan there? Or was it like, okay, Italy is the first stop of many? Initially, the focus was just on moving from Japan to Italy. And there was so much involved in that massive overhaul of our lives, and not to mention a lot of excitement. So we really focused first and foremost on that. And 
I actually had another opportunity that ended up falling through in Italy. So we were not able to stay beyond the term that I was there for the cooking school. But while I was still uh, going to classes every day, uh, another opportunity opened up somewhere else. And we sat down again as a family and we realized we picked up once to move from Japan to Italy, we could conceivably pick up and move to another country and then another country after that and another one after that and kind of do this indefinitely. And the more we talked about it, the more excited we all got. And so that's what we've been doing ever since. That's incredible. Now, again, I'm, I'm an incredibly practical person. So my mind always goes to practicalities. Did you have a student visa in Italy? No, I did not. In fact, everywhere that we have been traveling since, we have been on tourist visas. And every place that we have loved and considered staying, we have looked into uh, both the legal and the administrative requirements uh, that we would need in order to do that. And in most instances, we've really just been more curious about exploring other parts of the world and so we keep going and we joke that maybe eventually we'll find a place that we love so much we want to settle down but maybe not who knows well I think that's a very interesting thing Um, you know because basically y'all are nomads you're you're full-time travelers versus you had the more traditional expat experience when you lived in Japan because I was going to ask like why you all were living this lifestyle now but I think you answered that that you know the curiosity and the ability to explore different cultures and countries you know like here you can do that so why not (laughs) <laughs> it really it really was just an organic outgrowth of our curiosity and it is such a blessing to be able to travel the way that we do and more than anything we have found that we traveling as a family we learn so much and we have grown so close together and we remain really present with one another in everything that we experience each and every day And so planning far beyond that in terms of settling down in one particular place or living a more traditional lifestyle just really doesn't have as much appeal as continuing this beautiful life that we've been blessed to fall into. That's awesome. Now, how do you decide, because you've been, you've lived in Italy you are currently living in Albania. Um, I know there were another few countries in there in between. How do y'all decide how long to stay in a country, which country is next, that sort of thing? Well, as I said, we have been learning, uh, not just my son, but all of us, uh, everywhere we go. And Just before we left Japan, I was introduced to a wider community of people who call themselves world schoolers who do the same thing. And so I have been part of a variety of 
online world schooling communities, other traveling families, not all necessarily nomadic like we are, but a wider community of people who have experiences very similar to ours in different parts of the world. And so we have reached out and connected with other such families and the opportunities that that has created for uh, my continued learning in terms of education and food in pursuit of the arts uh, and just general curiosity uh, has really kind of led us to each of the different places that we go. And it's something that we all sit down and discuss as a family. You studied cooking in Italy um, and you have a, a platform called Our Kitchen Classroom. Um, That's right. Can you explain what it is? Because I look at it and I'm like, well, it's part classroom, it's part cooking school, it's part travel log, but I feel like that's, it's more than that. It is so much more. And the longer we do it, the more I realize just how intricately and how complexly interwoven our food, our travels, our learning, our day-to-day lives really are. Uh, Our kitchen classroom grew out of the International Montessori School that we founded in Japan. And as the Renaissance woman that I am, I loved uh, being able to sing and dance and do art and music and read in different languages and all of the different things that we got to do with the children and their families and the community even at our school. Uh, But by far, one of the most dramatic foreign concepts that I introduced in our school and that we were able to share with our families and with our community was the process of cooking together. And as we continue to grow and expand the programs at our school, cooking with the children, making lunch, making snacks, even throwing full-on family dinner parties and cooking for international festivals within the community became one of the core bedrocks of what we did at our school. And I'm talking about making lunch and snacks every single day with children under the age of six. (laughs) Uh, And we read books together. We studied different dishes and cuisines from around the world. And we really went all in on the incredible multi-sensory experience that the food provides. And as we were preparing to leave Japan, so many of our friends and family there were just begging to stay connected, especially knowing that we were going to Italy and where I was going to be cooking even more. And so I started off really just writing a few short letters, uh, notes, taking pictures to share with our friends and family around the world about what we were cooking, what we were enjoying in different types of produce and dishes in different parts of the world as we began our travels. And more and more of them continued to reach out and they said, hey, how do you do that? That was beautiful. Can you show me how to do that too? I know you're far away, but can we still cook together? And so that's what we do at our kitchen classroom. I've really just thrown open the doors to our 
culinary world schooling adventures and invited so many more people into our lives and into our learning than we ever possibly could have in the four walls of our brick and mortar school in that small town in Japan. I was looking, because you have um, the website, you've got a YouTube channel, you also have a Facebook group, and I noticed in the Facebook group's description, it says, we foster food freedom. Let's leave the dietary indoctrination and arbitrary food rules outside. Was Yes. <laughs> Was there some reasoning behind adding that to the description? Absolutely. Um, as a large black woman, I have, gosh, for my entire life, I have always received what I felt like was criticism, extra scrutiny, even discrimination around what I decided to eat. And I remember from as young as six years old being told I needed to be careful. I needed to watch what I ate because I didn't want to get fat. And like so many women all over the world, I grew up in this diet culture that insisted that I was the problem if my body got too large, that I was doing something wrong if I didn't fit into this conventional stereotype of what a, woman's, uh, what a woman should look like, uh, what my appearance should be. And I felt a lot of pressure to not eat too much, <laughs> to not be too loud, to not get too big, and to shrink myself down into this tiny box. And the more I began to cook, especially with the, young, the youngest of the children, my own son included, uh, the more I saw the, their joy at just experiencing, I mean, really savoring the food. And it was the most beautiful, joyful, sensual experience. And I thought, why can't I have that too? <laughs> and that was when I discovered this whole body positive, health at every size community. More people like me who were tired of being told that their bodies were the problem um, because it's simply not true. There's so much research uh, surrounding the fact that diets simply don't work for shrinking every human body, just like uh, all the different vast variety of foods around the world we as people are all unique. We're not all the same. We don't all process our food differently and we shouldn't expect to. <laughs> and so I feel like uh, in conjunction really with this travel journey, I've been given a new lease on life through food freedom. And so I really encourage people who come into our play with your food community to set all of that aside and really focus more on what's 
in front of them and how they experience it to really be present and discover how it makes them feel. And more and more people are discovering that they care a whole lot less <laughs> about what other people say they should be doing. And they can really not just experience the food, but experience everything in their lives in a much more positive and much more liberating way. And so that is a huge part of what I want to share with all of our fun food fans. I'm, I'm here for all of that. <laughs> uh, definitely. Um, you talked about world schooling and I think I have heard of it. I'm somewhat familiar with it. Uh, and I know it's in that same realm as homeschooling um, or um, unschooling. Cause I was going to say anti-schooling, but I knew that wasn't it. Okay. So it's, you know, in <laughs> no, that <not> same, <laughs> it's in that same realm. Um, yeah. Could you describe like, what, what does a typical day of world schooling look like for your family? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I get asked that question all the time. And in all honesty, nothing about what we do is typical. Um, we might start our day at 6 a.m. or 9 a.m. or maybe not until noon. <laughs> um, we might go to bed early or we might stay up super, super late. Uh, and especially because we're often online, uh, all three of us uh, connecting with and playing with and teaching or learning from um, other friends and educators and fans all over the world. There is no typical time schedule. There's no typical day. We literally have a chance to pursue the things about which we are most passionate. And for my husband, that includes writing and weightlifting. Uh, for my son, that includes things like exploring the local playgrounds and playing with friends. We've had loads of fun at a local trampoline park here in Albania. I saw the and... picture of you doing a toe touch. <laughs> so yeah, I would say that y'all are having lots of fun. In the typical fashion here. And quite frequently, I am the oldest or sometimes even the only adult out there bouncing on the trampolines with my nine-year-old. And it is so much fun. Um, but yeah, we'll go play at the trampoline park. We've got ice skating, rock climbing, uh, bicycling around the lake. And the beauty of world schooling is that everybody we meet, everywhere we go, every experience we have is educational. And we embrace those opportunities in everything that we do. Do you, do you make a, I'm just trying to, to, to visualize it for myself and help anyone listening. So, you know, let's say you're doing cooking. Are you making a point to be like, I am teaching you this thing? Or is it more like, 
by making this, they're learning fractions or, you know, whatever. Honestly, it's both of those. Okay. Sometimes it's none of those. Uh, It's, again, we really focus on what is most organic about each of our experience. And I don't just mean the natural land from which the food grows or whatever, but it's that too. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, One day my son and I went walking to one of our uh, local food shops here in Albania. And we've made friends with the shop owners who are connected with lots of local farms and food producers around the country to bring local, seasonal, organic, fresh produce to the market. So we walk in, we have a chat with the shop owners, we wander around to see what looks good. And as we pick up something that just appeals to us, or as we discover some fruit or some product that we've never seen before, we start to ask questions. And we begin to build our dinner menu for that night or another meal later in the week around what we discover. And so we might take something new like the saffron that we found, which we were amazed to learn grows here in Albania. Albania, which has almost embraced its role in a way as one of the poorest countries in Eastern Europe, but grows the most expensive spice. And so we got to know what local Albanian dishes are made with saffron. And then we collected a farm-grown chicken from one of our neighbors and some local rice. And we put together a traditional Albanian dish. And that connected us with our neighbors, with the local shop, with Albanian tradition, with a little bit of the history and the geography of where the saffron grows. And it all came together in one of the most amazing meals that we have had in a long time on our dinner table. And then we have the most incredible discussions about everything that we've learned in the process. I'm shocked. I had no idea saffron was grown in Albania. Hmm. I know, right? No idea. (laughs) These are the things we discover every single day. So again, thinking about practicalities, um, let's say that there comes a time when your son decides that he wants to attend university. How are there admission standards that would, would not require a traditional high school diploma or how does that work? There absolutely are. In fact, uh, so much of the traditional education system as we know it is undergoing extensive scrutiny and almost complete overhaul in some quarters as this most recent pandemic has had everybody (laughs) learning from home. Um, But just like, you know, when my husband and I were applying to universities, every school has their own specific recommendations and more and more institutions around the world are recognizing 
families like ours that are following their own unique educational path and in part because of the very unique global perspectives that we bring, they are courting students just like my son to bring those skills, to bring those life experiences, to bring that different perspective uh, to learning in their institutions. And so each school has its own requirements, whether they want SAT scores or some other standardized tests, if they have language specific requirements, because he's already talked about the possibilities of returning to Japan or, uh, you know, going back to Mexico, for example. Um, and then there are the same sorts of things that I remember doing when I was applying to school extracurricular activities and community service and the sorts of essays and the way that you present yourself. In fact, come to think of it, it's a lot like what most adults will do in terms of preparing their curriculum vitae, their resume, to present themselves in the best possible light to an employer. Young people today are doing just that to attend institutions of higher learning. So if that's what he chooses to do, I have no doubt that he will be well prepared to do exactly that. Are there any world schooling resources that you would recommend to parents who are interested or looking for a, where to start? Well, I would have to say that uh, simply Googling world schooling will bring up so many different um, online communities and uh, resources that a lot of people never even imagined existed out there. Um, <laughs> I like to laugh because I feel like I discovered that term, world schooling, after realizing that that was really what we were already doing, not just when we started traveling, but way before then in our international Montessori school. Uh, it, in fact, that's the way that I learned, even as a child. <laughs> so um, I encourage people to join communities, world schooling communities. Um, and in fact, I am even a moderator in one of those online groups. It's called We Are World Schoolers on Facebook. And it's expanding to into a an online platform with a subscription service and so many more resources all coming together. And then there are families just like mine, people who do what we do, who chronicle their adventures. So it might be uh, blogs. Mine obviously has a culinary slant, but all of the educational opportunities are highlighted in there. There are all sorts of different ways that families travel to, whether it's slow travel or fast travel, just vacations from regular school breaks because people have a home base somewhere, um, people who RV or van life, uh, any number of different ways that you can think of people traveling, backpacking and camping, <laughs> um, you know, luxury apartments and hotels, all of those different things. World schoolers run the complete gamut. And uh, my son <laughs> has been working really hard to uh, expand upon his lessons that he's learned so far in the first three years or so of our 
full-time nomadic travels with his own book to reach out from a children's perspective and share that. And so I encourage people to reach out if they're curious about world schooling and connect with other world schoolers, um, people who look like you, people who want to travel the way that you'd like to travel, people who have uh, lived in or visited the places that you want to go. There is a wealth of information out there. Uh, just takes a little digging. How long have you all been in Albania? Albania is a really amazing place with uh, not only a welcoming populace, but uh, governmentally and administratively welcoming procedures as well. As U.S. passport holders, we can stay as tourists for one year. And so when we kind of we're spinning the globe and figuring out where we wanted to go next after our second tour of Italy uh, back in 2008, we literally looked at the map and we were like, oh, Albania. We've heard some amazing things about that place. And it's just right on the other side of the Adriatic. Let's go there. So we hopped across the water and we stayed for a year and then we left again and we explored a bit more of the Balkans, Greece and North Macedonia. And we fell in love with this place so much. We have come back for a second year and who knows, we've been exploring the possibility of extending our stay even more as well as taking a look at other countries about which we're curious and have yet to visit. Obviously the current pandemic has severely halted global travels right now. And so we are just remaining open and flexible, and we're going to wait and see what world travel looks like again in the next few months, and we'll make a decision and go from there. Now, I think I know the answer to this question, but I will ask it because I think there is someone who probably uh, wants to hear the answer. You opted to stay in Albania during the pandemic. Um, did that turn out to be a good choice for you and your family? Absolutely. No question whatsoever. We have been, my husband and I especially, have been outside of the United States for most of our 20 years of marriage now. For over 13 years. And our son, born in Japan, he's lived in more different countries around the world than he has years on this planet. Uh, he is a true global citizen. And so when we started hearing uh, rumors about the pending lockdowns and we started getting information about evacuation flights back to people's passport countries, in all honesty, it wasn't really a consideration. And as tensions have escalated to full-on riots and protests in the streets, we stand strong with Black Lives Matter. We've really kind of felt thrust into an almost refugee status here in Albania. People have always asked us, is it safe? for you to travel in all these different places that we've been around the world, from Mexico to Italy, Australia, New Zealand, 
violence in our passport country. And we recognize that we have been safer here in Albania, in every other country that we have visited. We have been safer than we would feel in the United States of America right now. So we are absolutely thankful to be here. It, it makes me really, really sad to say that as a U.S. citizen because I love my country, but I love the ideals that the country stands for. And unfortunately, it has not lived up to those ideals. And so we're going to continue to work hard and support change as we can from afar. And we will continue to educate and uplift everyone from wherever we happen to be around the globe. But for right now, we're going to stay where we are. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing your, your incredible story. Um, if, well, where, where can people find you online? They can find us at ourkitchenclassroom.com. And as you also mentioned, we have a presence on a lot of different social media platforms as well. They can find me, Karen M. Ricks, on Facebook and Instagram. And check for the hashtag, Our Kitchen Classroom. We also have a YouTube channel. And our Play With Your Food community is the place that all of our fun food fans come to gather together to share all of the wonderful inspiration that we find in our food and our daily lives all over the world. And I teach all sorts of cooking lessons that are infused with a bit of all the other world schooling adventures that we're experiencing. Specifically, though, with an extra focus on the Japanese cuisine that we grew to love over 10 years, and Mexican, and the Italian stuff that I learned in cooking school, and Albanian food that we're doing here now, and every place we've ever been, and every place we want to go. We bring all of those cuisines, cooking techniques, the lessons learned, the beautiful languages and cultures all together in our kitchen classroom. Thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes for links to Karen's website, her YouTube channel, and her Facebook community. If you want, uh, you can connect with me via Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Um, there are links to all of those on my website, www.pickygirltravelstheworld.com. A big thank you to all of you who left reviews of the podcast. If you like the work that I'm doing here, leaving a review of the show is an easy way to show your support and appreciation. Um, but if you would like to show your appreciation in a more tangible i.e. financial way, you can do that too. You can become a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month using the link in the description. Thanks again. See y'all next week.